teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, as I mentioned, you can be making your way over to Nahum chapter 2. And uh, I <clears throat> thought this morning I'd do a little this date in history. I don't know if you've read the newspapers. They have these little columns. Uh, I think the LA Daily News still has it where they put some key events that have taken place on that date in history. And I thought we'd do that this morning for August 3rd because did you know that August 3rd, 1492 was the day that Columbus set sail for India? Got a little sidetracked on the way. August 3rd, 1852, that was the date where there was the first intercollegiate rowing race, and Harvard beat Yale in that race. On this date, 1914, Germany declared war on France, which began World War I. On August 3rd, 1934, that is when Hitler joined the offices of president and chancellor to become Germany's first and only Fuhrer, and we know what happened then. August 3rd, 1949, any NBA fans in here? Anyone want a minute? That was when the NBA was formed, on this date in 1949. 1977, and you computer geeks should remember this. You probably celebrated this date, August 3rd, because Radio Shack announced the TRS-80. Everyone's going, what? That was actually the first, uh, uh, first mass-produced PC in the world. August 3rd is also when Tony Bennett, Martha Stewart, Martin Sheen, and Tom Brady were born. And it was on this date, August 3rd, or a day very close to it, when in the year 612 B.C., the great city of Nineveh fell. And it fell at the hands of the Babylonians and the Medes. And you're probably wondering, how was I going to connect all that? (laughs) Babylon came upon Assyria, and with the Medes and the Scythians, they attacked, and it was a stunning defeat. Nobody saw this one coming. It was completely unexpected. Assyria had been the dominant empire in the region for 200 plus years. And there were many factors that contributed to Nineveh's demise. Many historians would say, well, at the death of Ashurbanipal, who was one of the most powerful of the Assyrian kings that built the empire to its peak, when he died, things fell apart. There was infighting between the brothers, his sons, and there was also a lot of internal corruption. And though the historians would say those were the key events. They would also say that, you know, Babylon and other nations around saw the weakening of Assyria, and so they stopped paying tribute, and they started carving off little chunks of land back for themselves. And again, historians would point to these things, but we know through the prophet Nahum in the scriptures exactly why Nineveh fell, right? Who was the ultimate agent behind that? It's God himself. And Nahum wrote his prophecy as an oracle of judgment. He probably wrote it Uh, During the peak of Assyria's power, uh, sometime maybe 25 years or so before the death of Ashurbanipal, it's this same Nineveh, if you remember, Jonah was sent to. He had the message of judgment, and when he went and proclaimed that message, you guys remember what happened, right? What happened? Come on, yeah, that's right. There was massive revival. People of Nineveh repented. But sadly, it was less than one generation later when King Tiglath Eliezer took the throne in Assyria and plunged them back into their imperialistic and warmongering ways where they carried out much bloodshed, oppression. We've been talking about that 
several times. Just Assyria was known for that. And so Nahum comes on the scene and he declares prophetically that Assyria's days have ended, or they will end very soon. Her international power was coming to an end. And Nahum wrote this little book. It's three chapters, 47 verses long. It's a very short book. It's really focused around one theme, and it's got a simple outline. The first chapter is focusing on God's judgment being declared against Nineveh, and the second two chapters, two and three, on God's judgment detailed and how that judgment was going to roll out and what would happen. A few weeks ago, we started back in chapter one. We looked at that chapter and took a detour a little bit because as Nahum began the chapter, he focused on the fact that God was an avenging God. He was full of wrath against sin, and and hence the tone of the entire book was God's judgment against Nineveh for her sin. And so we took advantage of that time and really looked at God's final expression of wrath by judging sinners in hell. And this morning, we're going to go back to Nahum's message. We're going to go back and look at the last two chapters and look at what he had written there. And I'm going to do it more by way of a general overview. We're not going to go verse by verse necessarily. I just want to give you a, a, a big picture of what he describes here. And I want to do that because I want to end our time talking a little bit more about other, some other considerations we need to think about regarding our response to hell. We have talked much about it, but there are still more things that, that it shows us about God himself. And especially considering the question that is often asked, how could a loving God send people to hell? So the first point today will be God's judgment detailed from Nahum, and the second point will be God's judgment distrusted. So look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. Here we're given a picture of Nineveh's destruction. Nahum says in verse 1, The one who scatters has come against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel which, when he is prepared to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He, that's the scatterer, remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to the wall and the mantle it is set up. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. We'll stop there. So here we're given kind of this abrupt... uh, Uh, confusing at times, it's rapid statements that Nahum makes going back and forth, and it might be a little bit confusing. What's going on here? And Nahum is doing these things on purpose. He's using great literary skill in describing the downfall of Nineveh, this this picture that he presents. In verse 1, he talks about how uh, he's like this guy calling the people to arms as the enemy is approaching the city, like a watchman standing on the tower. And, And the picture that he sees before him is this massive army. It's colored in red from their uniforms. The shields, the copper plated shields are glistening red from the reflection of the sun. 
And he describes these chariots moving forward in rapid and wild fashion. And they probably had um, swords that were attached to the wheels. So as the wheels were spinning, it just looked like flashing as the sun is, uh, is reflecting off of them. He describes these spears that are brand- being brandished. And this picture is like of this wave, this ebb and flow of a wave as the spears are moving back and forth from this massive army. Verse 4, Nahum depicts this, uh, this force, this enemy force, moving forward with an onslaught, a ferocious onslaught. The chariots are rushing about. They're moving through the suburbs, wiping everything out as they're marching towards the wall of Nineveh proper, great city of Nineveh. Verse 5 says the assault is so rapid that the soldiers, the chariots, are stumbling along their way just to get to the wall. The impression's... Here, as the Assyrians give little fight back, they are so overwhelmed, they give little opposition. And once the enemy hits the wall, they set up what the verse 5 calls a mantelet or a, a protection for the soldiers so that they would be defended from the arrows and the projectiles coming off of the wall. And it's important to understand at this point something. If you picture yourself, you're in the army, you're moving forward, you're just rapidly sweeping through the the suburbs of Nineveh, and as you approach the great city, there is this huge wall in front of you. It's massive. In fact, um, there's a little hand-drawn picture here of the excavations that have been done from starting in the mid-1800s in Nineveh. It was about a city of about eight miles in circumference. The city walls were estimated to be at least 60 to 100 feet high probably more than 25 feet wide. It was a well-protected structure. It was a city, a place that King Sennacherib had established as the capital city of Assyria, probably about 50 years uh, before Nahum uh, gave his message. And this layout shows that just it was a, a city that was very structured and very protected. Notice there, he's got a massive river on one side. There's actually a river on the other side. There was a moat about 150 feet wide around this. So you're, these soldiers advancing forward, yeah, you're showing great success as you move through the suburbs, but you hit this wall and it's like, what do we do now? Right? It was massive. Well, verse 6 gives us a clue as to how they actually breached this thing. Notice there it says something about water. Again, as I show up here on this drawn layout, There's the river that's moving alongside next to the city. When Sennacherib expanded Assyria, or Nineveh, excuse me, he diverted some of that water from this large river through town so that they'd have easy access to drinking water. And he did that by building several dams and also these uh, floodgates in order to, to store the water and to control its flow through the city. And what would often happen during a siege, right, if you were going to surround a town and attack it, what would you do to the water supply? cut it off, right? Well, they cut it off, and then apparently at some point they let the gates open, and this massive amount of water just flushes right through the city of Nineveh. It batters against the walls, and then they were able to breach them. If you remember back in Nahum 1.8, it says the city would be overwhelmed by flooding. Ancient Greek historian Diodorus had mentioned that that took place as he uh, had studied the annals from the Medes and Babylonians that in August of 612 BC, there was a flooding in the city. Archaeologists have actually found existence of water damage on some of the ruins around the walls of Nineveh. And so the floodwaters broke through. The soldiers entered into the city. And once that took place, we see this description here of utter chaos and desolation. 
We hear in verse 8, the Assyrian generals are crying out, Stop! Stop! As their troops are trying to flee the scene, as the nobles are running from town. But nobody listens. Also, Nahum describes the cries of plunder the silver, plunder the gold, as these enemy soldiers are throughout the city. And it's interesting here he mentions that there is no end to it. There was no limit to the treasure in Nineveh. And that's because every city they conquered, they would collect the treasure and bring it back. In fact, in the Babylonian Chronicles, which describe uh, in it, have a description of the Babylonians' defeat of Nineveh. They said their quote, and if you read cuneiform, you can pick one of these up and do some pleasure reading at night, but he mentions that there, the description, that there was a quantity of plunder beyond counting, just a massive amount of, of stuff. And then in verse 10, we see Nineveh described as being completely decimated, completely humiliated, completely overwhelmed. And then he gives this interesting metaphor in verse 11. Look there with me. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard." Interesting description here. He's talking about lions and how they had gathered their prey and had eaten it and filled their lairs with their victims. And it's interesting that he uses this metaphor because Assyria prided itself in being like a lion. In fact, the Assyrian kings called themselves lions. If you were to look at the ruins in Nineveh, if you could get in there now, it's in Iraq, but there were statues of sphinxes and the palaces, the mosaics and the pictures that the kings had on their walls were of lions. And so here we get this description of that. And it's as if, as Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser says, the lion of Assyria was easily defanged by the lion of Judah. Chapter 3 begins with this tone of judgment continuing. The first word there is woe, something you would often hear at a funeral scene, but in oracles of judgment, it was often used to proclaim judgment. Look at verse 1. Nahum says there, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Now here again, we're given this uh, seemingly massive confusion and, and description, these rapid statements. Nahum is describing, again, the destruction of Nineveh. And if you notice here in verse 5, did you see a phrase there that, that he repeats? He says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. If you remember back just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 2, he uses the exact same phrase. They, they kind of are forming a bookend here. And they're bookending what's in between it. 
And what's in between it is the reason why God is against the Assyrians. For there in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, he describes why he is pouring out his wrath upon them. And he says, Behold, I am against you. You see, the problem with Assyria wasn't that they had gained so much wealth or that they had risen in prominence. The issue was the manner in which they achieved those things. Verse 1, Nahum notes that Nineveh is called a city of blood or literally bloods. That was a Hebrew term that was often used to emphasize and focus on violence and bloodshed, murder. He also says that Nineveh is full of lies. And that's referring there to the Assyrian practice of, of deception, especially when they would approach weaker nations. They would come in a show of force, and then they would make these offers to the nation. Just surrender, and you'll be taken care of. In fact, if you've been keeping up with your reading this week, Jim, are you, are you on track in Isaiah? You keeping up? Uh-huh, accountability. Ah, okay. Thought I'd catch you there. Isaiah 36, 37, we see an example of this where the the Assyrians have surrounded Jerusalem with their massive army and then Sennacherib, the king, sends his messenger to to talk to the people within the city of Jerusalem, Rabshakeh. And old Rab, he comes in, he says, yeah, yeah, you know what, we got this massive army out here, but you know what, if you just surrender, we'll take care of you. You'll have vineyards, you'll have fig trees, you'll have land, everything's going to be great. Now, do you think he was telling the truth? No, he just wanted to save their soldiers from getting killed in a battle. So, you know, if he can get them to surrender, they're, they're all the better for it. So, this deceit, this lies, that was a common practice by many nations, but especially the Assyrians. They were known for their great skill in doing that. Notice at the end of verse 1, that phrase there, her prey never departs. Kind of this flashback to the lion metaphor that he was using just a few verses earlier. That phrase means here this idea there is a continual stream of victims. That Assyria did not let up. That her prey, that her victims continued. Right after that statement then, right after he makes that statement about that, we're thrust into another battle scene. Right? And it's just, again, chaos. There's horses and and chariots and swords and spears flashing around. Everything's going crazy. And many scholars think that, well, he's going back to Uh, This is a description of the enemy coming through Assyria. And it's similar sounding to what was described back in chapter 2. And then in verse 4, there's this mention of because um, that seems to give the reason for a judgment in verses 2 and 3. But I think what Nahum's doing is this. He's just described in verse 1 that the city is full of blood, right? It's murderous violence. He ends the verse with this, her prey never departs. There's this picture of continual victims at the hands of Assyria. And then it's almost like he turns on a projector. Or I guess nowadays he'd, you know, hold up his iPad. And he shows a scene. A scene of the Assyrians and the damage and chaos and violence that they would portray. It'd be like to say, hey, remember, this is, what I, this is what I'm talking about here. Because notice in verse 3, what's the emphasis there? Four different phrases he uses. Many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies. So many they stumble over them. Body count was something the Assyrian kings took great pride in. Again, in your cuneiform reading late at night, if you read through the annals, you would find many of these kings, after a, a victory, they would go on and on and on about the number of bodies they piled up, or the number of heads they cut off, or the number of people they impaled. Give specific and exact numbers. How many exiles they took away. They were very proud of body count. 
So I think here the focus and the emphasis is on what the Assyrians had been doing and doing and doing to so many people. Going through these cities and just murdering en masse. Nahum then follows this gruesome picture in verse 4 by listing two more of their egregious sins, their harlotries and their sorceries. Temple prostitution was prolific there. Nineveh was the center of worship for the goddess Ishtar, god of fertility and war and sex. Easter, by the way, comes from that word, Ishtar. Archaeologists have found thousands of tablets which describe the many sorceries and incantations and uh, superstitions that were held by the Assyrians. And so we see in these verses that Assyria was corrupt through and through, that they were someone, a people that were against God, that were horrific in their treatment of others. And so in verses 5 to 7, God again declares, I am against you. And he describes how he would bring upon them a humiliating and a complete defeat. And then he ends it with, and no one's going to be sorry. Assyria, your funeral will be unattended. And to those in Nahum's day, the thought of this great city of Nineveh suffering such a defeat, such a humiliation, such devastation, the thought of Assyria herself being able to to be penetrated by an enemy army and be defeated, it was preposterous. It was far-fetched, especially if you were an Assyrian. You'd think, "Yeah, yeah, right, sure, okay. Bring it on. We'll see what happens. And remember, Nahum probably spoke this, wrote this oracle sometime at the, around the height of the Assyrian dominance. And so Assyria had this invincibility mindset. But Nahum responds to the naysayers in verse 8. Look in, there in chapter 3. Are you, referring to Assyria, better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Now Nahum is describing here a place, actually a, a city in Egypt. It's located down here. You can see a picture here of the Assyrian Empire around the time of Nahum. The city was called Noamon here in the scripture. We know it as a city of thieves. Thebes. I almost said thieves. Thebes. And No is a word that comes from an Egyptian word for city. Amon or Amun is a, a god that was associated in Nahum's day with the chief of Egyptian gods, Ra, the sun god. And so Noamon is really the city of Amon or Amun. And that was a massive, prominent city in those days. Notice, and, and even Nahum describes it, it was located along the, the, the Nile River, about a half-mile wide river. Had a great setup for defense. It was very fortified, massive walls, just like Nineveh as well. And that was a place nobody thought could be defeated. But it was in 663 B.C. where our king Ashurbanipal took his army deep into Egypt and wiped out completely the city of Thebes. And he, in fact, describes, again, of course, in his annals, all that he had done there, and describes this massive amount of treasure and loot that he had taken from the city. It's interesting to note in his description in those annals, where he, what he says is very similar to what we read about in verse 10, where he takes away the nobility, he took away the great men, they sold many of them into slavery, or took them back to Assyria for their own uses. And also, too, he describes with glee how 
they had dashed the heads of infants against the rocks because they didn't want to hassle with bringing them on the journey as prisoners. Again, just a brutal, brutal people. And so in those three verses, this description that Nahum gives here and what he's talking about, he's telling the Assyrians, yeah, you guys think that nobody can overtake you and humiliate and devastate you. Remember what you did to the city of Thebes who nobody thought it would ever happen? The rest of chapter 3, Nahum then tells of the ease and the, the swiftness, the totality in which the city of Nineveh would be destroyed. Look at verse 11. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. This is picture as the water is, is destroying the walls of the city. Hurry, rush, get some more bricks to build it back up. Verse 15, there fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. Creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. Kind of like when you lift up a piece of wood and all the crickets just take off, right? It's the same picture here. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered in the mountains. There's no one to regather them. There's no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Again, such vivid and rich imagery, full of metaphors here, as, as Nahum is describing the utter defeat of Nineveh. In fact, he, he speaks of them like locusts, you know, where they come in, consume, and then they're gone. And he says, that's what it's going to look like. All your nobles, all your leaders, all your people, they're going to be gone. People will be scattered abroad. Bodies will be strewn about. And this description tells us exactly what the Assyrians had done to so many other nations. So many other cities would happen to them. Notice in verse 15, Nahum says that the city would be consumed by fire. Ancient Babylonian records indicate that they indeed did burn the city. And in fact, uh, archaeologists have found some traces of, of uh, that in their in the excavations of Nineveh. And so this great city of Nineveh would fall to flood and to fire. And it would be just seven years later when Assyria would completely fade into the background of history as King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon totally wipes them out. And I've covered these, I know, in rapid fashion, almost in a sense to match kind of how Nahum did it, just rapidly moving through. But the center's all around the same theme, the same idea of this judgment that's sweeping through Assyria. God's wrath and anger and fury against the sin committed by these people. And as we reflect on Nahum's message overall, again we see, as with many of the prophets, this, this message of judgment. Indeed, it was written as that. And it was written not to the people of Nineveh primarily. If you go back to Nahum 1.15, we see that it was written about Nineveh, but it was written to the people of Judah. Notice there where Nahum said, Behold, 
on the mountains. I'm in Nahum 115. The feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one, Assyria, pass through you. He's completely cut off. So what's the tone here? How do you think people of Judah, upon hearing this message that Assyria is going to get it, what do you think their response would be? Right? Celebration, right? We can have our feasts again. We don't have to keep giving all our money to Assyria. Those guys are going to be dealt with. And notice in 3.7 of Nahum, no one would grieve their loss. And then he even ends the book of Nahum in verse 19 of chapter 3, describing how the people, when they see what happens to Assyria, they're going to be clapping and, and, and joy and applause because the Assyrians have been such a devastating and violent people among the nations. Now, I want you to think about that response. Think a minute. How does that sit with you? Yeah, the, the ruthless Assyrian rulers, they would be dealt with. The military leaders and the soldiers, God would call them to account for the violence and murders that they carried out. But I want you to think about this. As those, that wave of Assyrian or Babylonian and Mede soldiers are moving through the suburbs, as they're approaching the wall of the city, as they enter the wall and they pass through and they're wiping out everything in their path, I want you to think about not the soldiers of Assyria, but the farmers. The merchants, the mothers weaving their baskets in their homes, the carpenter at his workbench, the woman making bread. Because as this massive army of judgment comes through Nineveh, those people too would perish. This judgment, this theme is something we've been seeing in every prophet, haven't we? Nahum, the complete book, is about it. Many of our other prophets, they talk about God's judgment. They talk about his wrath. And Nahum explicitly lays that out. And we have been talking about not just the judgment, knowing that there is judgment in this life. There are consequences. But God's consequences extend far beyond just perishing from physical death, right? We've been talking about God's ultimate judgment of a second death. Because there are going to be many standing at the great white throne, many from Assyria, the great white throne that's described in Revelation chapter 20. Many will be there. Many, many, many others in history will also be there. And God will judge them for their deeds. And it says those that were judged according to their deeds, God will cast into the lake of fire. We've been talking about that. A real place. Unending torment. No relief. Conscious torment. And this reality of hell is... As I mentioned several other times, it's caused many to feel uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable subject to think about God's wrath. We wince at times when we read all of this strong judgment that's portrayed here. And people may say, hey, wait a minute. Hell doesn't seem very fair. Yeah, the Assyrians, they may have worshipped Ishtar and, and they may have uh, sold lies. They may have stolen things. They, they may have committed immorality. But an eternity in hell for just a finite lifetime of sins? That doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem right. Certainly doesn't seem loving. A few weeks ago, I read from uh, uh, the liberal theologian Clark Pinnock, who said this How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures? however sinful they may have been. 
Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God. That's a strong statement. If there is a hell, and there is, and if God made it, and he did, and if he puts people there, and he does, then God is more like Satan than God. In Pinnock's eyes, British scholar John Wenham said, I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries. I should be happy if before I die I could help in sweeping it away. And I could read lots and lots of other quotes from many who are theologians, scholars. And so often they impugn God for his wrath. They openly rebuke him for judging people in hell, and they chide Christians for believing in such a place, even considering that it could be real. And so the battle cry for Clark Pinnock and John Wenham and so many others is, how could a loving God send people to a place of unending torture? It's a difficult question. Perhaps you have heard someone ask you that or something similar to it. Perhaps you have asked it yourself. I've wrestled with this. We've seen the last few weeks that the Bible does clearly teach there is a hell. The Bible clearly describes what that terrible and horrible place is like. And we've looked at several of those verses. But then you get statements like these from Pinnock and Wenham and many others. And, and people ask the question, how could a loving God... And it almost, you feel like at that point you need to apologize for God. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's embarrassing. Sometimes we may be tempted to keep it secret because it does feel embarrassing. In his book, Erasing Hell, Francis Chan confesses his struggle with this. He says, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I have tried to hide God at times. Who do I think I am? The truth is, God is perfect and right in all that he does, and I'm a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all that he does is perfect. Then he says, God is not embarrassed by what is written in the Bible about his actions. So I need to stop being embarrassed too. It's time to stop apologizing for God and start apologizing to God. So often, we want God to fit in our box, don't we? We want Him to make sense. We want to understand Him. We want Him, at times, to be as we think we, He should be, right? I mean, this is, this is a common desire that all people have to some extent. And we read in the Bible that, that God is loving and compassionate and patient and merciful and kind. And we also read that He is holy and just and that He does exhibit wrath that he avenges sin and evil and we might get that part right sin is bad it is terrible and you know the assyrians the things they did were horrible and, and many other people in history have just done horrible things and so god brings these consequences and i think we get that we understand that but when we talk about what these consequences ultimately will be that god's wrath against sin is fierce so fierce he will banish human beings to a place of eternal torment in the lake of fire, well, well, now God's escaping our box. He's moving outside of what we are comfortable with. It just doesn't feel right. John Feinberg said, 
the issue is not theological, but really emotional. And he's right. But again, the Bible the Bible's not a mystery when it comes to talking about God's wrath, to talking about hell and what it is like. There's no just a few hidden and obscure texts tucked way back where you've got to dig and dig and find them. It is everywhere. Just like Francis Chan said, God doesn't seem to be embarrassed about it. And Jesus wasn't either. In fact, he spoke more about hell than anybody else. Twelve different times he mentions that. He talks about what it's like. So how do we come to terms with this? What do we do with God's wrath and God's hell? If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned a few things there. You can listen online. But last week we talked about how knowing the, the depth, uh, the severity, the, the horror of God's wrath against sin in hell, that should move us to, uh, we talked about two responses, right? Do you remember them? They're two words. They kind of rhymed. Wow. I'm impressed. Implore and adore, right? To implore, to, to seek to rescue people, to tell them about it, to rescue our own souls or make sure that we understand and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to adore Christ, knowing the severity, the depth, the, the terror of hell and that that's what he took on on the cross so that we would not have to suffer if we put our faith in him. Those are just a few responses to consider when we talk about hell there are several others that I wanted to discuss this morning, or what the time that we have left. Uh, again, knowing that hell and what it's really like actually teaches us a lot about God and what He is like. First, we are reminded that God is incomprehensible. We can't mold Him into a manageable box. He's not like a piece of clay <laughs> that we can make fit what we want to see. Paul said in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Paul had given this expression right after he'd been talking about the gospel, God's wrath, his justice, his forgiveness, his love, his mercy, sin, salvation justification, all these things, and he spends the first 11 chapters, and he gets to the point where it's, ah, oh, I don't even get it. This is beyond me. I can't, I can't comprehend God. That word there that he says in Romans 11, unsearchable, what does that word mean? What does unsearchable mean? You can't, you can't find it. It's unsearchable. There's no map that tells you how to get there. You know, a treasure can be hidden, but it is searchable. What Paul is saying is God's mind, his understanding, that's something we can't find or search out. Job 11.7 says, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? Indeed, we are made in the image of God, but not in the exact image. We have to remind ourselves, God is infinite, and we aren't. He is Known, but he cannot be fully known. And we have to stop trying to make him fit into our understanding. And I know the response. I've read many of them, many philosophers, atheists, and say, well, yeah, yeah, you guys always do that. When there's something hard or difficult and about God or about uh, doctrine or truth, and then you get to a point and say, well, we just can't understand beyond it. That's a cop-out. No, it isn't. Do you, can you grasp the infinite? It's exactly what God describes of himself. He is infinite. We are not. 
We ask the question, how can God's love be infinite? And yet, he's full of anger. How do those coexist? And so what we do in our minds, or, or people do at times, is they'll say, well, love is a more noble attribute, and it trumps wrath. It is a stronger, better one. So how in the world do we put ourselves in the position to make that call? That's the height of arrogance, to redefine his wrath into what I'm comfortable with. Again, Psalm 145.3 says, God's greatness is unsearchable. It means he can't be fully understood. And beloved, we have to be okay with that. So it's the idea of faith, trust. Hell reminds us that God is incomprehensible. It also teaches us that God is sovereign. Because at the end of the day, whether we understand or not, whether we agree or not, whether we wish it were true or not, really doesn't matter. Because God does whatever he wants. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and in all the deeps. Or Isaiah, and Jim, if you'd been caught up, you would have read this this week, Isaiah 46, where Isaiah says there, God speaking through him says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Simply put, God is saying, this is my universe, and you are my creation. But frankly, we often want God to answer to us. When something that God says or that he does doesn't make sense, doesn't seem right or fair, then we want God to give an account for himself. Daniel 4.35 says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, speaking this, the one who ended up wiping out the Assyrian Empire. But God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? The gist of his statement is, no one can stop God from doing what he wants, and he doesn't have to answer for it. Speaking of God's mercy towards some and not towards others in Romans, Paul is talking about God's involvement in salvation. There are those that would question the fairness of it. And so Paul answers them in Romans 9.20 when he says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Does not the potter have a right over the clay to make the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? I mean, it's a basic principle, but think about this. Okay, you're going to have a meal today. You sit down and, and you put some food on your plate, and all of a sudden your plate starts talking. Hey, wait a minute. What are you doing putting liver on top of me? That stuff is gross. And those onions makes me sick. Take that off of there. Your cup is not going to start an argument with you about, why'd you put Coke in me? I like Pepsi. It'd be a sinful cup if it said that, but, right? You don't have a conversation with the dishware. Why? They're just made objects. Just as we are, at the end of the day, clay pots. God's the creator. He's the builder. He's the owner. I mean, think, think with me on this. Lloyd, you do a lot of construction. He does great carpentry, by the way. So let's say, Lloyd, you decide you want to build a table, right? So you go down to, to the store, you buy the construction materials. And how do you make those decisions? You get consulted for that? You just decide, right? You pick out the kind of wood you want, 
what you want to do with it, you want to stain it, you want to paint it, what it's going to look like. Actually, your wife will tell you what that is, right? So she'll decide that. But you'll do the work, right? And he'll go home, he'll build this table. Now, as he's doing that, Lloyd, do you consult the table for advice? No. I mean, do you ask the table, would you like to be a, a coffee table in here or a dinner table in here? Do you ask the table? Uh, what if you decided that, you know what, I'm going to use this table, I'm going to put it in the garage and store my dirty garden tools on it. Does your table have a right to give input? Or what if you decided to make it into something else? Or you decided to chop it up and put it you know, in the fireplace? Or you want to get rid of it or sell it? Do you have a right to do that? Do you? Why? It's your table. You made it. That's right. It is created by you. You gave it purpose. You gave it an existence. And in the same way, at the end of the day, and we don't like to think of ourselves like this, but we are simply clay pots made by another. Not only formed by God into our shape, he made the very substance itself. He made the clay. God said to Israel in Jeremiah eighteen six, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Again, you see, God's saying here that he doesn't answer to us. He doesn't seek our approval or permission. He doesn't consult us about his decisions. He doesn't say, hey, Paul, 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 is that this, this health thing? What, what do you think about it? I mean, um, you think it's a little strong? Right? God doesn't do that with any of us. And I'm so glad he doesn't. Because are you an infinite being, Paul? Hey, hey you, you uh, hesitated. <laughs> We're going to have a talk. <laughs> right? None of us are all wise or all knowing or all powerful. None of us are eternal. And so hell is reminding us of something. It's reminding us that God is the one who is in control. He's the one who calls the shots. It's his world, not ours. Hell also reminds us something else, that God is holy. For if there's one thing that he cannot stand in his world, it is what? Sin, right? Why? He is perfectly holy, infinitely holy, eternally holy. If anything shows just how holy he is and how evil sin is, it is the fact that there is a hell. The heinousness of the crime is seen by the severity of the punishment. So how evil must sin be if the appropriate consequence by a just and fair and good God is hell? Many will ask again, though, how is it fair for God to judge people in an eternal hell when they've only committed a finite number of sins? But do you see how that question, it totally betrays a human bias as if we really could put ourselves in the place of understanding what sin is like? a perfect and holy God in his perfect universe? At least it was until our sin. How in the world can we understand the depth of our sin or the evilness of it? We're completely corrupted by it, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. We're, we're not in a place to render an objective opinion. That would be like asking Lance Armstrong to chair a commission on steroid use. It's not even close, but you get the point, right? See, the reality of Hell, the, the horror of it tells us just how holy God is and how wicked sin is. It's been said that 
what makes sin so bad is not necessarily the one sinning, but the one who's been sinned against. And that should motivate us, shouldn't it? To flee the very thing that God hates so much, he would create a place like hell in order to deal with it. And so hell gives us a greater picture of his holiness, and it also gives us a greater picture of his justice. They kind of go together. For every sin, every single one that's been committed against an infinite and eternal and holy God must be accounted for. And people ask again, well, how is eternal suffering a just punishment? How could a God, how could God send a being that he had created to a place like that? A being he created for his glory. Well, let me ask you this. What about Satan? Is he not a created being? In fact, he was probably, he was the most powerful and at one time the most beautiful created being in the universe. How do you guys feel about him being sent to the lake of fire? Are you okay with that? What about demons? They were created powerful beings. How are you with throwing them in the lake of fire forever? What about the Antichrist? What about Hitler, Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Stalin? How do you feel about them? And I could rattle off many, many more names, torturers and serial killers and just terrible and wicked people. But at what point is a person's sin grievous enough to deserve hell? You see my point? We, we all deserve hell. We all deserve, because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God who deserves our glory, our glorifying Him, deserves our worship. And beloved, we don't know what true holiness really is, but God does. We don't know what true justice really is, but God does. And hell is the right and just response of a holy God to our sin. And again, though we all deserve hell, God has provided a way for his justice to be met at the expense of somebody else. Right? Jesus has paid for your sin. If you would confess that sin to him, genuinely desire to turn from it, place your trust in him. He's made the payment. You don't have to. We've been talking about hell and the horrors and God's wrath and all these things, and Jesus took that on himself, didn't he? We talked about it last week, that he suffered multiple eternities of hell in the place of those who put their trust in him. And beloved, that shows me something. Not only is God holy, not only is he just, but he's full of mercy. Just as Ian sang that wonderful song earlier, have mercy on me. And God says, I will, because I poured out my fury on my son. Believe in him, trust in him, turn to him. You'll be forgiven. Experience the love and compassion and mercy and kindness and grace of God for eternity. You'll no longer be required to pay for your sin in hell. And so hell shows us not only his uncomprehensibility and God's sovereignty and God's holiness and his justice, it shows us his mercy. He hates sin so much, and yet what Jesus Christ went through in order to pay for it. That is incredible mercy. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. After World War I, 
the United States gave vast sums of money to Europe to care for the many orphans that had uh, resulted from that war. A.W. Tozer tells the story of a man he had heard about from that time who came into an orphanage one day and he was leading his little girl with him and both of them were walking very slowly. You could tell they were very weak, that uh, they were both suffering severely from malnutrition. The little girl's tummy was distended and her arms and her legs were just way too thin for a child of her size. And so the man comes up and he speaks to the person in charge of the orphanage and he says, I would like you to take in my little girl. And the man behind the desk said, we're, we're awfully sorry, sir, but we can only take in true orphans here where both parents are gone. Because if one parent is still alive, we can't take them in. There are just too many orphans. So the girl's father looked down to her and looked back at the man and he appealed and said, sir, I, I've been a POW. I am too sick and I'm too weak. I can't work. I can't care for her. Would you please take her in? And the, the man, again, with very grief, he said, I'm, I'm so sorry, sir. There, there's nothing we can do. So the father said, you mean the only way that you would take in my daughter and feed her and care for her and clothe her and give her a home is if I were dead? Yes, sir, that's correct. And so with that, the man slowly kneels down to the ground, hugs his little girl, kisses her, takes her hand and puts it into the hand of the man behind the desk and says, I can arrange that. And he went outside and took his life. All to care for his little girl. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jesus gave his life so that you might live. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. Amen. Father, it is overwhelming to think about you. Lord, hell just gives us a little bit more of a glimpse, your holiness and your power, your justice, which you can't really be understood fully. Lord, it shows us your mercy, for you have said clearly that you desire that none perish, but that all come to repentance. Lord Jesus, you stepped in our place so that we would not have to suffer that hell and Again, we are so grateful, so thankful. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, move in us to respond by pursuing holiness, by running with all our might from that very thing that you hate, that very thing that Christ died for, that we would be a holy people who love Jesus and who want to be like him and who want to tell the world about him, for he is wonderful. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.